This podcast is brought to you by StoreMaven. I won't lie, I am an employee at StoreMaven, so I want to tell you a little bit about why it's the greatest company on earth. If you're interested in growing your app in any way, organically, paid, both, we have tools to help you do it, whether it's optimizing your creatives, measuring the success and the effect of different efforts that you're taking, or just telling you what people look for in an app. We're here to help you do it. Know the product. Know the product as well as you possibly can. Look at all the funnels, look at all the KPI data that you can, because that's going to make you smarter when you see something that doesn't work. And you're like, hmm, is it not working because I don't know what I'm doing? Or is it because the game has done something that I didn't expect, a new version or whatever? Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes, a podcast by Stormaven. We break down how and why mobile apps grow. In each episode, we invite a mobile growth expert onto the show to break down a specific mobile growth strategy how it worked, why it worked, and what they would do differently. I'm your host, Esther Schatz. Hey, everybody. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, my name is Jonathan Fishman. I'm VP Marketing at Stormaven. Uh, I know that you're used uh, to hearing uh, Esther here, our VP Consultancy, but she's on maternity leave, uh, busy being a mom. So uh, great for her. And I have the pleasure of hosting today Adam Jaffe, here. Um, Adam, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. So my name is Adam Jaffe. I'm currently the CEO of Mega Worldwide. We're a, a gaming agency, um, primarily focused on, on game development, although we have a capacity for, for other kind of gaming-related topics, consultancy, whatnot. Uh, I've been in the gaming space, yeah, almost 15 years now. Started in Israel back in like 2008 in the real money casino space. Actually moved to Israel for like a completely unrelated thing. I went there to play professional football or soccer, as some of our American colleagues would know. Um, ended up playing for Tzeprim Cholon, um, but did not. Really? Didn't find myself. Yeah, it was um, with, uh, well, with a bunch of people that if I name, name them, the probably the Israeli size will we'll understand, but no one else will. Uh, realized that I wasn't going to be Ronaldo as much as I believed that I was going to be uh, and decided to kind of move off of that and, and get working. So Started in the real money casino space, like every good American who doesn't speak Hebrew, um, coming to Israel, and then got my lucky break actually from um, from a former boss, Maor Sadra, who's actually now the CEO of a company called Incremental. Um, he, I was looking for he, he was he had hired me, and then I um, then he fired me because I apparently wasn't so great at, at, at business development at that time, not like I am today, of course. And uh, he called me up. He said, don't sign with any company until you talk to this guy, because I think it's a good job for you. I was like, perfect. He goes, you know, what's the company? He's like, well, just go to this address and you'll see it. It's just like <laughs> terrible, small, horrible office with this like half, you know, the, you know, the logo was like all crooked. And the yeah. company was called Platica. And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds cool. Go in the thing. There's three people in the, in, in the company. And, you know, inside the office, very small. And um, yeah, it turned out to be the best decision ever made. You know, I, I joined as the 10th employee of the company and basically ran the marketing department by myself for the first uh, first year of the business. And sort of the rest is history. We moved around for, for a few different companies, Jam City, um, Social Point. You, you name it, I've probably done something with them. Wow, awesome. That's it's a crazy path. First of all, we're, I'm now sitting not very far from that uh, first office that you mentioned uh, from Platica. Yeah, pretty, pretty close uh, here in Tel Aviv. 
but it's an amazing story. And I didn't know that you were a soccer player uh, as a kid. It's very bizarre because I uh, lived in Haifa, which is uh, a bit up north from uh, Tel Aviv. But I was a fan of uh, Tzafirim Kulon, the, the, the team that you played for. Um, there was this game of like collecting uh, player cards here in Israel. Uh, so maybe I collected your cards if you were there. Um, <laughs> could we... 2007, if I collected a card, I would have been there. I mean, I'm, I don't know how much, more, how much older I am than you, but... Oh, that was, uh, I was in the military in 2007, so it was a bit earlier. But uh, fun stuff. There you go. Um, awesome. So today uh, we want to talk, uh, I know that you have a lot of thoughts about the changing landscape of, of gaming, especially with all the changes coming with uh, uh, privacy and uh, iOS 14, the deprecation of the IDFA and what that does to user acquisition, uh, generally the, the trend in M&A. Um, and basically the, the, our entire landscape of, of mobile gaming is changing uh, and it is impacting the role of what does it mean to do marketing for, for a mobile game company? Um, and one thing is sure, in my opinion, it's going to be very different than how things were up until now, um, where a lot of teams were extremely dependent on the networks to basically bring them extremely high, highly qualified users uh, using lookalike audiences and reporting to the networks, a lot of personal data to inform them, these are the users that we want. So um, so let's take a step back, though. Uh, I know that you have some thoughts about the traditional publishing business model and, and you think it, it's, it doesn't work anymore. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure that it ever worked. I mean, I was, you know, I, I've gone through the whole kind of ebb and flow of publishing from way back in the day. There's, you know, companies like Six Waves and Gree and, you know, even kind of, all, you know, all those Eastern companies coming to the United States and setting up these massive offices essentially to create you know, publishing arms, um, you know, the business was always essentially flawed from, from one major component, which is that it's really difficult to make games profitable. And games which are profitable are few and far between, and you're already taken that cut from Apple and Google. And so you're usually in a situation where you have a company which is maybe too small to do its own marketing. So it goes to a company like Six Waves or Agree back in the day, and then they pump a bunch of marketing into it. And then they're like, hey, we need you guys to do more things for us. And they're like, well, we don't have enough money because of the obvious, you know, payback period. Maybe it isn't tomorrow. We don't get the cash. We need to wait six months. So there's this kind of weird flow of cash and how that all works. And so, you know, those models really suffered. And then device graphs started coming up, right? So you had this whole behavioral targeting, which, which really transformed the market, right? The lookalike audiences were important, but only because they were leveraging device graph and device graph manipulation, which is the whole reason that we're currently in this position that we are in today. So, but with, with those device graph components, it made it much easier to market. So all of a sudden, the publishing model kind of came back a little bit. And it came back in a, in a slightly different way, which was that companies realized, we don't actually need to do much for these businesses. We just need to market them and find games like, so you have these companies like Tilting Point and Branch and a whole bunch of older business models that started coming up, which is like, we'll just do the marketing for you. You just need to pay us back that 110, 120% on the ROAS. And as long as that works for us on the marketing side, businesses can grow. So that was, you know, from about what, four and a half years ago, five years ago, I think Tilting Point really started kind of pushing the gas and then they raised a bunch of money. And then you've got the new model now as that has sort of transitioned initially it was just let's do the marketing. And then companies realized, I think pretty quickly that, oh, you know, if we also employ live op strategies and a bit of content development and maybe customer support, we can actually offer this entire kind of verticalized palette menu, if you will, 
for different companies. So some companies might really just need live operations. And then you've got companies like DECA and Stillfront and Phoenix Games, and they've now really come up in this space. And so this whole kind of idea of traditional publishing where you sort of send your game, you work really hard with a company to make a lot of changes, that doesn't really exist anymore in my mind. What, what's really following today is you have a business with a lot of money, and then they own a bunch of companies which all have kind of expertise in specific areas of game development. And so they're trying to match their own internal understanding of how games are moving. So as an example, I have a game, it has a certain amount of KPI, certain KPIs, we've spent certain money, whatever that is. They try and say, okay, well, we, we know how to make that game make more money, but we know how to do this next step, which you guys don't have the capacity for. And so we fit you into our network and basically align you with different, you know, different people to, to, to scale those businesses. Yeah, I think uh, you touched on a really important point here, which is expertise. Um, that understanding that um, some companies are really good or some people are really good at creating games, really great games. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're great at marketing um, in, in any way. Um, but, but my thoughts are, what do you think is going to happen? Because the, the business model that enabled all these publishing uh, companies, and I don't know, let's even think about Voodoo and, and Ketchup uh, back in the days um, that were based on hyper-casual games, uh, it existed because the networks enabled them to exist. All you, you had to have is basically huge budgets to deploy and the networks would do the matching with the audiences and, and that's it. But once that's gone, what do you think the future of, of, of that? Well, I think that, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a billion dollar question. I, I'm not sure. So I think that there, are, you think you can break it down into specific categories of gaming, right? So genres, if you talk about categories, if you talk about hyper-casual, casual, mid-core, hardcore. So your, your games, which are like whale-focused, very long life LTV users, they are going to suffer a lot because it becomes, because the, the pool of those users to find them is very difficult in contextual marketing contextual targeting, right? So I, as an example, my favorite, you know, a good example that I'm, I like to use is Warhammer, right? Warhammer's got a lot of games, but their biggest, the biggest Warhammer app, I think is maybe 40,000 DE or something like that. It's, it's not big. And that means that any company that's looking for Warhammer users has a very small pool of users to, to contextually target it because bundle ID is the highest qualifier for value, right? You can look at a bunch of things, time, country, device, blah, blah, but bundle ID is the main one. So that becomes really difficult. Whereas before you could find them in weather apps and whatever, because you knew they'd play all these other Warhammer games since you had a connecting device ID the device <laughs> with the device graph. So I think those, those types of products will become much harder to scale, like it was back in the day, right? I mean, when I started marketing for the casino, for, for Playtica, it was, it was really difficult. You know, we go to RTB and whatnot, it was $15, $20 an install. And they're like, you should be happy about that because that's, that's the cost. So I think, Certain verticals are going to become much better and, and much and basically not a whole lot will happen. I think your casual space, because the, the contextual component is still quite large. You think about match three, right? Most match threes, you've got million DAU products out there that you can essentially go out. Now you might be able to scale that super well, and there's going to be a cost component. Um, on the reverse side, your, your ad revenue is probably going to suffer. So your overall ROAS will, will shrink but probably not to the point where you're simply like, okay, I can't just, I simply can't do marketing anymore. So I think each vertical will have to kind of reconcile how it goes about defining profitability and how it defines scale. And I think we're not going to be looking, we're not going to be chasing these like, you know, 10 million DAUs. No, you're going to be like, I have to have a minimum threshold. Profitability becomes a lot more important. Companies like AlgoLift, Incremental, like any type of sort of external predictive analytics system is now going to become much more important to you 
because you know you're not getting the right users for the beginning. You know you got to have to like small flashlight in a big dark room. So that's I think the kind of next step. So I can't I can't tell you that everything is going to go. You know, it wasn't this nuclear thing like I think everyone thought it might be, but I definitely see that um, companies are a lot more tepid about this idea of like yeah we're just going to make a bunch of games and everything is going to you know go really well. Yeah, for sure. I I think that. Uh... Again, I really agree with you in terms of contextual marketing. I mean, it's uh, it's as if I mean, at first when the Apple announced, I think it was a year and a half ago, or almost a year and a half ago, that uh, they're deprecating the IDFA. Everybody thought, okay, that's the end of user acquisition. Then after some time, after some time, people thought about it and sat down and in a quiet room, and said, uh, okay, just basically sending us back a few errors back. Uh, let's just do marketing like all other normal industries in the world that don't uh, have this huge device graph to lean into um, and, and use context and find actually the apps. Uh, you talked about the bundle idea, the apps where our qualified users are are in and then start building these funnels. And that's actually what we're seeing, we're seeing from a lot of uh, uh, marketing teams these days. We're actually preparing for iOS 15 because Apple is basically continuing down this path and saying, okay, we're giving you more tools to build these funnels. We're going to give you custom product pages so you can use these custom product pages uh, in connection with different funnels. If, if a match three, if, if you're looking for these waves and you find them, I don't know, in some mid-core game uh, and you see this funnel is, is bringing you users that are worth a lot of money, you can start optimizing this funnel and build a custom product page that fit that audience uh, and influence them to install. Um, but, but one thing is sure, and, and I'm hearing this from all networks, including Facebook, that um, um, trying to somehow hack uh, their system to operate like it used to uh, is not going to work. And I, think, and, and I love what you were saying, the different eras, right? So as I mentioned, 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, you know, which was when I was really kind of getting into that mobile marketing space and really trying to like, I mean, I was one of the front runners and, you know, working with guys like Addicts Tracking. Uh, back then, I was like the, one of the first gaming clients. I actually personally built the UI for the product with, with David Phillipson back in the day. Um, we were one of the first gaming companies to really try and like, okay, we're doing this in web. Can, why can this not work in mobile? And, you know, I think we encountered a lot of, of issues, but we always had this like this connected tissue, right? There was at least some type of device ID that we could leverage. And I think what Apple has done um, on the face of it, in the in the context of privacy, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, <clears throat> given that Apple, then, of course, has all the data still, and Apple, I believe, in the future will, in the near future, will start to leverage that. I believe that they'll bring ROAS back. I think oh, of course, bring in a lot of that kind of stuff, and they'll become their own MMP. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations. So you mentioned, you know, everyone kind of freaked out, but then everybody like me who had actually been back, you know, when they when they deprecated the UDID, which was like, you know. Yeah. Most people are like, I don't even know what that is. And they're going to go Google that now. But you know, that, um, and then they created the IDFA, of course, from the, from the aftermath of that. Um, you know, we, we knew what that was like. We knew what, what targeting and marketing was like back in 2012, 2013. And I think Apple is trying to control the market in a, in a way that makes sense to them. You know, I think they saw this business model back in the day when we first, first, first heard about the App Store. Steve Jobs said you needed a million dollar minimum budget to market on this. And what a lot of people didn't realize was that in those early days, IAD and, and that product that they had was the biggest impression network in the world. It just was terrible because you couldn't track anything there. 
And so while it had a huge amount of users, nobody really made money there because it was so difficult. And I think Apple has gotten a lot smarter since then. And they realized like we can, with one swift movement, we can basically create billions and billions of dollars of value for our business beyond, of course, what they have. And I think we're seeing it right now. We're seeing sort of the first salvo. I think they already did uh, actually uh, start uh, this uh, this move of actually taking advantage of their position with uh, search ads, of course, because, you know, they and there's a lot of chatter in the industry, whether, you know, the legality of all of it from a from a competition standpoint, because they basically told all networks, uh, okay, you can't access this, uh, this data, it's our users, they view this as Everybody that has an iPhone is Apple's user. They have a contract with Apple. We're going to respect that contract. And in, the, in that contract, there's it, nowhere it's, it's written that uh, you can steal their data or get their data without their consent. But then they created a completely different setting for search ads where it's a completely different system. It's not based on SK ad network or any opt-in consent or anything else. And in search ads, for example, even if a user has the setting uh, turned off, like you, you don't allow apps to track you. And even if you see the ATT prompt asked you for consent and you say no, even after that, the app can basically ping the search ad server and get back a pretty full post back of uh, uh, whether that person has installed uh, by, by uh, tapping on a search ad and a ton of information, like the yeah. keywords. And then, of course, you can connect revenues to that. So I think they already did start it. The problem there is, in my opinion, is a question of, of scale and inventory because a lot of companies can just uh, push all their budgets for... Yeah, search ads is terrible. I mean, it's never been a great product in, in, in its best days. It was, was always mediocre. I would say even fifth tier on your... On, you know, nobody was like, yeah, search ads that Google and Facebook, you know, for scale. We, get, we use those other ones for whatever, but, but search ads is like... Mm-hmm. Anyone who said that is either being paid or works for directly for Apple. And um, I mean, it's just never been a good... Pro- Apple Apple is just not good at search. I mean, as an example, I have an iPhone. I have had many iPhones. Uh, if you mistype a word in Apple, it will, there's no, no results will appear. It does not understand that you put a Q instead of a P, right? It, yeah. it doesn't know that. And so, you know, I think it, it, it lacks sort of basic framework, in my opinion. It's just, that's not, that's not their product. Apple doesn't do software well, in my opinion. <laughs> wow, that's, that's quite a statement. <laughs> you know, I think you, you look at the, I mean, how many people use maps? How many people use pages? How many people, how many people have an, a MacBook with Windows installed? You know, like you, you look at the products that Apple put out and it's great for creativity and certain editing software, like it has its place. And I think people also, Mac has created a, um, a cult of following around its products, right? I mean, they're more, they're more expensive, they come out less frequently and they're worse, they're worse. When you look at them specially on the spec sheet, they're simply worse products. And yet the ecosystem, call it what you want, you know, they've created, anyway. Yeah. We could go down this path for, for hours and hours, but I think if I could say that there's a shift in the ecosystem, I think Apple is totally aware of what they're doing and they will make money hand over fist um, by doing it. I, I agree. Although it's really interesting to see how the, how the things uh, unfold on the legal front in terms of, I mean, just two days ago, Apple put out a press release that they um, gave up on certain uh, legal battles that they have, and they're now allowing developers to basically email users to uh, 
to tell them there is a different payment option that they don't have to pay through in a purchases. Uh, and now it's legal. And they also promised uh, the, the market basically that uh, the search algorithm will stay objective at least for the next three years. Why did they say the next three years and not forever? I have no idea, but they said uh, uh, it's going to be objective and we're not going to prefer our own apps in search. So we'll see if they'll, you know, the payment thing is big, by the way. I mean, I saw I saw Supercell a couple. I posted something on LinkedIn a couple weeks ago, and I was like, I "Oh yeah, I, I commented on your post." Yeah, I was yeah. like, "What's going on over here?" You know, and and then you were like, "Yeah, you commented about the legal case," and I had heard about that obviously in the courts, but didn't know that there was any like definitive. And and you know that when Supercell does something, it's not because they're just like tiptoeing around it. You know, they're they're probably the most spotlighted company. That's mm-hmm. huge. I mean, that's a huge that's a huge step for for sort of equality. I mean, as somebody who ran a small business trying to survive. You know, you basically that 30% that Apple takes, that's everything. That's your whole business. You know, most businesses think about retail, manufacturing, 2% margin, 3%, that's it. That's all they have. You know, their whole business is built on, you know, this tiny, tiny fraction. And somehow gaming is like, yeah, if we don't, we're really profitable because the organic traffic, you're like, okay. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I, I definitely think that it's go- just going to be, it, it's, it, it's progressing toward a future where anyone can use any in-app payment system that they want because uh, they won't ha- have the ability to justify it. You know, uh, a world where um, Netflix or Spotify or certain dating apps uh, can do that, can go around the payment system, uh, but games can't. I mean, why? Um, so anyway, let's take a step back and, and think. I, I'm interested to hear what you think would be the, the role of a marketing person uh, in 2022, 2023, like the types of skills that people had in the past, even talking specifically about user acquisition, it was all a numbers game, ROAS optimization, um, throw a bunch of creatives into the networks, let them do the optimization in their black box. Um, we said that this is not going to work anymore. So how, what is it going to be like to be a, a mobile marketing person in, uh, in the, the next few years? So I think that there's a lot. So th- there's sort of two, there are two size to this coin, right? There's like what you have to do as a marketer, but then there's what you have to do as a game developer because those two things, they need to work together. As an example, as a game developer, I give everything that I want to Iron Source. I'm like, hey man, I'm just gonna do this. <laughs> and you're gonna just tell me what I need to know. Iron Source doesn't even tell you the CPM per user, right? You have no understanding what, they give you an average of a, of, of a country based on above and it's two days late. I mean, it's totally useless information. So if I'm trying to optimize my own game for ad revenue, which is in certain cases can be a lot, it could be 50, 60% in certain, and even other ones, it's 100%, right? It's the, and it can be the difference between profitability or not. Those mediation layers are essentially the most black box you could possibly, you're always like, why is this working this way? I don't understand. Why did this all of a sudden jump, you know, 300%? Oh, and then you have to start thinking, oh, well, there must have been an advertiser. Or not. It could have just been that one person did something for you. And then they were like, don't worry, we're going to give you price optimization. Right, and you're like, oh, awesome. And then it was multi-tier price optimization. So then you had a little bit more control and a little bit, but still you have no idea the value of the users that you have in your product. They're not buying specifically from you and, and engaging with your product on a whatever your path. So on the one hand, you know, you've got, in, in, in traditional marketing, that's crazy. People would be like, what? You're just letting some third party define the value of your, of your, of your users. And you generally would say yes, because of the whole device graph. But since that doesn't exist anymore, the connection between what the product actually has internally and how you target that needs to be a little bit more succinct. So I think the con- what we had back in the day, if you remember like the Maudows and the appetizers, this whole kind of click traffic, whatever, well, it only worked because we knew the types of users that were in that product and we could easily kind of move traffic. So I think this idea of ad serving 
and having your own understanding and having an internal team that really works on, on building value, trying to understand like, hey, we have these iPhone users, we have this, this, all the segmentation. Now this might happen to the mediation layer or it'll happen on as like an internal team. That there's a, there's a big gap there that exists today in the market. I mean, as an example, you can't do internal product. Like I can't today use iron source to, to go and do a private marketplace with say, I don't know, some other company that I, you know, I just want to do a direct deal between you and me. You pay me 50 bucks a click. I and we'll, we'll make some money. That doesn't work. And so that whole ecosystem, which is essentially, let's call it all of web <laughs> for, the, for, for all of time, that's going to come to mobile. It has to. Um, and then there's a big opportunity there as people know less about their products, users, the internal team needs to be a little bit more, you know, smarter about that and to be able to sell it. So I think on the one hand, having this kind of much more, much more connect, connected, there's more connected tissue between the, the actual users you bring and how much they're worth to you and how much you need to sell them for, that'll be something. And then on the other side, the marketer, I think your your idea of product page optimization, it, it's, it works, obviously, Stormhaven, you guys are sort of the, the kings and queens of that area. And you know, you've had these products for years and years. I think this is actually a big opportunity for you guys to really take it to the next level. I also think that when it comes to how people have marketed, I don't think that creative is going to go away in terms of its number one importance. I think there's still this huge, huge amount of value and it's still the biggest opportunity for, for op optimization, especially even now more so, the creative is more important. And I think what we're going to see, which is a little bit unfortunate in my opinion, is that this idea of clickbait, and I was just on the internet the other day on YouTube looking in, and they were just talking about like, you know, clickbait works. Like it depressingly so, it's depressingly effective. And I think we're not gonna, we're, we're still gonna see just terrible advertisements trying to gain as many clicks as, as possible. I mean, you look at certain networks who will, who will remain anonymous and you're like, how do you have, I, I brought 400,000 clicks in my campaign and you know I'm working with five or six different publishers, but how does it that you brought 395,000 of those clicks, right? And we're paying it like that, you know, there's certain people out there doing some things which are a little bit weird, which I think will continue. Um, but the marketer of tomorrow is going to be somebody who has, I think, three main characteristics. One is very strong business development skills, because like what I started in the business, you know, you needed to know, you needed to know the, the, the campaign manager for, for, you know, over there, you needed to know that you really needed to know Tapjoy. You really needed to know the companies you worked with because there was a significant value that you could create by knowing the other guy at whatever company. If I knew the guy in, I don't know, in, in Supercell, we could have a, a good deal together, then we, we knew we could be able to make some money there. So I think that, that relationship component, which doesn't really exist today, you just sit down in your little chair, do some marketing and you make money, that needs to evolve. The second, which I think is current, is this idea of data and how you know, today that was the big emphasis. Get me a guy who can do, who can basically write SQL and I'll be, I'll be fine. You know, and I think that that sort of goes out the window. Um, I think the data component will need to rely actually heavier on sort of these third-party tools because it just won't make sense. Guys like incremental, um, algo lift, things which maybe not don't need as much signaling to try and optimize using the SCAD network or using um, using the IMEI from, from Google, of course, as a, as a proxy to what you should be doing in iOS, I think is going to be uh, incredibly important. And, and then how you feed that back into your DSP or wherever it is that you're, you're trying to run to. And then the third one is, 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 as I mentioned, I think around creative optimization and, and really, truly, truly, truly understanding who your users are, right? So thinking you, you, 
you know, gone are the days of just like throwing it up and letting the, letting the tool figure it out. I think here you, you need to say, okay, these are the apps that we're going after. What's the most, I mean, I remember sitting hours and hours with my team. Okay, here are, the, here are our best performing apps in terms of like where we market. Why do we think this works really well? Okay, well, we're going to do a deal now. I remember when we started working with uh, Cheetah Mobile, right? Cheetah Mobile was coming out and they were saying, hey, we've got great quality traffic. It's all of these um, utility apps. And we thought, okay, cool. Well, they're a battery saver. There are this, there are that. Let's put an ad together that, that makes it fit that, that user base, not for our product, but for their product. So I think this idea of really trying to understand where your users are rather than where they're going is going to be incredibly important. And then you match that with your page, right? You say, okay, cool. I have a battery saver. So I'm going to make an ad that feels like a battery saver, but it's really for a game. When you click on it, they're going to go to the product page, which ties that experience together. Will this have some kind of better value than what we're doing today? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Anyone who is currently sitting here thinking that what Apple is giving us now will in any way be better than what we've had, say, two years ago, is deluding themselves into thinking that they're anyone who's saying this is the, this is the way now. Yeah, of course. I, I think that that comparison shouldn't exist. I mean, I hear some people make it, but it's basically, like in my understanding, it was like the Wild West. We, we, it's only in mobile, only in mobile user acquisition. Uh, you had the system where you had an entity such as Facebook collecting an unbelievable amount of data from the entire world. Like which songs are you playing on Spotify or, or uh, I don't know, that you're active in a dating app so you might feel lonely. So uh, you now belong to that bucket and then let's advertise to you something. And they got the, these events from all the apps around the world. And that's, it just wasn't fair. It was, it was like magic, dark magic. I don't know. <laughs> you remember, I actually have a very vivid memory. Do you remember? When you when you actually realized, like you, you learned for the first time about what the device graph was and and how it worked. Yeah, yeah, I, I, my mind was blown. Tell, tell me your story. No, I, I mean, first of all, I, I entered mobile uh, when I started working at Storm Event. It was about uh, four and a half years ago, and I didn't really understand uh, what it was. I keep I kept hearing uh, device graph, device device graph. I think it was some somebody at uh, Taptica that uh, explained it to me, and uh, and then I just everything connected in my mind and basically understanding that uh, these networks, and then I thought about Facebook, uh, all these years where I saw ads that I thought that this can't be right. How did they, why, why am I thinking about shoes and seeing an ad for shoes? It can't be. I, I just talked to a friend and then there was this world where, you know, people outside of tech think that uh, Facebook uh, records them, uh, which isn't, that's not correct, but they just know everything you did in other apps any browser and everywhere in, in, in that you're active online. And, uh, and they just connect all of these things in a very sophisticated uh, machine learning based uh, type of algorithm that uh, find correlations where even humans can't. Uh, so it really mimics how people think. Uh, and then I thought it's really weird because, you know, when I grew up, uh, I had a, like a family friend with a shoe store and I thought about like, the, the, this person with the shoe store, which went bankrupt, of course, there is uh, no place for independent shoe stores in uh, northern Israel. Um, but it's uh, he, he didn't get this chance, like to just market to all the people that want shoes now today. Um, so I thought it's just unfair that that was my thought. Yeah, it's. Uh... Um, but uh, I, I loved what you said about the three point four. Uh, uh, the three pillars of, of what it'll take to do good uh, mobile marketing uh, in, in this next few years. And I just want to say my, uh, um, 
I have a thought about creative optimization because I read from Facebook, they, they published a report, they called it uh, the big catch or something about that, uh, the big catch creative system, uh, like two weeks ago. And uh, it's about mobile gaming. And basically they came out and said, listen, we were telling you that if you're going to rely on app event optimization, AEO or value optimization or all of these kind of things, you're screwed. You're basically marketing to a very small pool of people and uh, your growth is going to stall and, and then uh, you're, you're going to be in a problem. So we have a solution for that. And our solution is to basically go back to the real marketing, as they call it, like think about who your audience is, where they, where they are, what the context they're coming with uh, and design creatives that are motivation uh, based. Like what's the motivation for these users to play a game? They want to relax. They want escapism. They want competition. They want uh, uh, cooperation. And if you'll do that and you'll shift your targeting to be very broad, they said our algorithm will basically be able to learn if you have, let's say an ad about competition, we'll find, we'll optimize that ad for various metrics, uh, they're all top of the funnel, but we'll find you the audience of people that play competition and we'll serve that ad to them. And so using uh, creatives, creatives is, is, is targeting basically in the future. That's what I said, uh, which I found uh, interesting. I mean, it, make, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it will be, I mean, as someone who spent, let's say some money in marketing over the last <laughs> Yeah, some money. <laughs> There is a night and day, it's not even in the same galaxy difference between an app install campaign and a VO, you know, value-based campaign. I mean, it, you literally cannot underscore that. And actually that was what really got me when I heard about all this device graph stuff, the manipulation, just, just how predatory it was to people who were looking for installs and you knew you were not going to get a single buyer. It was just not going to exist in that, in that ecosystem. It just Facebook knew that these people were clickers and not, not buyers. And I think... Their business model of will will still work. You'll still get value. You know, still get volume. You still get and and actually the the black box nature of it will probably work sort of in the benefit of Facebook. They can still kind of claim the black box status. I think other networks which don't give um, visibility into the networks into the publisher IDs, excuse me, and just give you numbers that will they'll, they'll start getting some serious pressure to kind of yeah, I agree. Open and then, that up um, and. But coming back to one of the original topics we had right at the beginning of the call, which is this idea of, of how game companies now sort of promote themselves. How do they get bought? How do they get sold? Mm -hmm. I think you're looking at a business model, which is essentially, it's now a team. It used to be one guy could like, like I said, the guy sitting in a chair like me could basically run everything. I, I have all the skills that you know needed and there it is. Um, because the system is basically taking care of itself. And I think today, what's going to happen and as things move forward is that gaming companies are realizing that they need, they need more games basically to fill in that, whatever you want to talk about the IDFV in different ways to like connect your own, this internal cross promotion. So it makes more sense not to be a one game company. It's better actually to have two, three or four or five games cross promote, reduce cost of marketing like that. That's going to become a much bigger play. It always was to a degree, but it wasn't super important because you did, you were leveraging the device graph of somebody else's company. Right mm -hmm. now you're like, okay, I actually know the value I have internally. Let's try and figure out how I move users from game one to game two. The best company that did this was Zynga, right? Actually, they're still doing this. Yeah. They're just... yeah but, and I'm talking about back in the day, right? So Zynga's yeah. big business model in for Farmville and whatnot, 2000, you know, early, early days was 
how much of how, what percent of our population can we go from Farmville to, to Frontierville to Cityville? And they were very good at moving these user bases. No gaming company today does has any expertise in that for the most part. It's just not a mobile, excuse me. They just it's just not something. I mean, I you know, I'm talking to guys who are, you know, billions and billions of dollar businesses. And you talk about cross-promotion, we don't believe in it. We don't do it. We've never done it. You know, and I think that sentiment. That's that will not exist in, in two years. Nobody is going to talk about not having a sophisticated internal system. And on the opposite side, the way in which companies are going to get bought is going to be different. It used to be you could just you could buy for EBIT, you could buy for you know top line revenue. Like these components were, impor- were important, but I think there's also going to be now this other part, which is about marketability. How is it going to be easy for me to bring users through that product to facilitate my own games? Can I create some synergies in, internally, which essentially weren't important? Uh, six months ago or even two years ago, right? Because in the end, it was like, can I market this game? Yes. Then buy it because my internal team already know we're going to add 200% to your ROAS because you never moved outside of whatever. I don't know, blind fair media. Like that's your, like, that's cool. Those guys are great, but you know, maybe that's all you ever did because you had a, you didn't know how to do everything else. So we know we're going to build value there or you never did live ops or you never ran LTEs or whatever. So there's going to be a lot more emphasis about in-game a lot more people are going to be like, you've done, done these things. We can do those outside of the marketing experience. But then again, I mean, I remember as an example, and this is probably very indicative of how I think things are going to go. I was one of the first companies to do burst campaigns. I think we may have ran the first one in places ever, right? We invested a ton of money when we launched a lot of money on mobile. And, and then I was working with this company, AppTurbo, back in the day. You may or may not remember those guys. And they basically guarantee top spot in any, any company, any country, right? You pay 50K, 20K, whatever. You get to the top. You have that organic sort of waterfall that would take place. And it started to become really expensive for Slotomania because it was just casino app. Really, Not that many people were into it. And so I started thinking, hey, what if I built a publishing network? And all I did was I promoted those games at the top of the chart. And I put my ads inside that product. And I siphoned off all those users. Now. I think my idea was great. I think my timing was probably a little bit, maybe five years too early because admin, we had, I think we were using Playhaven and it was just, didn't understand how to really do deep integrated ad serving. Um, we did it a couple of times and it showed that it could work. Like there was a way that there was getting traffic. Um, it just wasn't sustainable because in the end, we just didn't, we, we thought that that burst was really the main driver for how to get there. But the, the context of having this pay source, this, this product you have in your network which is driving a ton of revenue, and actually a ton of users into your sort of pool. That's not a concept which people are really thinking about today. And I think that is something that's going to be a cornerstone of how companies will buy businesses in the future. You know, they're looking for companies that do have something that they don't have, and they have, they're looking for something that they can then ingest into their own system, which then can sort of provide value to the rest of the network in ways which I haven't seen yet. So, definitely, I think it's it's gonna it could create some unbelievably large game companies uh, in the next few years uh, driven by all of this, uh, this M&A. Uh, some of them might even be unexpected, such as AppLevin, that is, uh, um, and all the vertical integration that is happening. Uh, we've seen it happening once, I think, in from a developer when Zynga acquired um, Chartboost. Um, but uh, the, the vendors and the networks uh, just uh, lift off and bungle and, and now merging. And uh, it's just going to be uh, a market with um, a few very, very large uh, players, I believe. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that there's a lot of consolidation that will take place. Yeah. I think that you're seeing it now. So uh, we're running out of time, but uh, just before uh, we go, this has been fascinating. So thank you. 
Um, I want to, to ask you a few questions that we ask uh, all of our guests here. Sure. So first, if you could just give one tip to an aspiring mobile growth marketer, somebody entering uh, mobile growth or mobile marketing, what, it, what would it be? Well, I think I still love this idea of, I'd say it's really important to know your product. I don't think I can stress that enough. And I don't mean it like I play my game, I'm a user. Like, I think it's important that you truly understand understand the funnels, understand the steps, understand how a user is meant to move through your product because you can control a very small amount of, of what actually happens in a product. I mean, you can bring the right type of user that has a big impact, of course, but knowing why something is taking place, why your ROAS is up or down, and that's not just because some external factors and, you know, a guy sneezed, he clicked on a button, now he's a VIP, which can happen. <laughs> I think you need to sit as, as closely as you can with your product teams. That's not something that also exists much today. There's still a very big gap. So I, I tell my guys, like, know, know the product. Know the product as well as you possibly can. Look at all the funnels. Look at all the KPI data that you can, because that's going to make you smarter when you see something that doesn't work. And you're like, hmm, is it not working because I don't know what I'm doing? Or is it because the game has done something that I didn't expect, a new version or whatever? You can't say how many times that has been the case. Great, uh, great tip. Uh, what's your favorite mobile growth uh, or mobile marketing resource? Where do you go to read? Oh, man. Mobile. For news. Where do I go to read? Stand um, yeah, um, probably it's not really mobile growth in that sense. I like I like VentureBeat. Also, I, I gotta say LinkedIn. You know, a lot of my a lot of my contacts just in the space. LinkedIn has become kind of the um, trumpeting ground for you know what's taking place. Who got bought by what? And I think those M and A components. So there's uh, I think Tech is it TechCrunch that has uh, I believe has like a, a feeder for you know when companies are getting acquired. And not everything makes it to LinkedIn. And you know, I'm not connected to everybody, although many. And I think knowing who's buying who is an important mess, you know, important to see how things are moving. Because you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Zinga buying Charpoost. That's really interesting. That that signals something to the market. So I that's where I go. Cool. Uh, and who's the person in mobile marketing or mobile growth or even the mobile space that you would uh, most want to take for lunch? Um, could be anyone, doesn't have to be anyone from the ecosystem. Take for lunch. Be somebody um, from Apple. <laughs> no, wouldn't be from Apple, and it probably wouldn't be from Google either. Anybody that I could take to lunch. Um, that's a good question. I think. Yeah, I... <laughs> there's so many. Um, I think it would have to be um, one of one of the two people that. So I sit on a bunch of. I sit on some advisory boards. Mm-hmm. Um, been active for the last eight years and helped them a lot. Um, and then two companies in particular, one is called Data Seat and the other one is called Incremental. And I think it would be a toss up between those three CEOs because they're all kind of in pole position to see what's really taking place. So it would probably be Muli from Moon Active or Moal or Sadra from Incremental or David Phillipson from, from Data Seat because those guys are now all in very unique positions having doing a lot of marketing, having businesses which are in very, very different phases of their careers and in different phases of, of the mobile industry. But all, I would bring them all together. We'd have a big lunch. That would probably be the best. <laughs> cool. And uh, finally, that's an, an important question for our podcast, uh, which is called Mobile Growth and Pancakes. What is your favorite uh, flavor of pancake? Oh, that's easy. Blueberries, man. Every day. Blueberries. I'm with I, you, man. I mess around. I make, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm sort of, the, I'm the pancake uh, chef in the house. We, we do we do try to do it once a week and blueberry is the is the go-to. I'm, I'm with a little butter. 
I'm with you. Cool. So if anyone listening to this wants to find you and, and reach out, uh, where can they do that? Yeah, LinkedIn is always the best, man. I'm uh, Adam Jaffe. Just find me. I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty easy to locate in that sense. Um, awesome. Feel free to reach out and yeah. Cool. Awesome. So thank you very much for today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, see you all next time. And that was Mobile Growth and Pancakes. To find out more about StoreMaven and how we can improve App Store performance, visit StoreMaven.com. And then make sure to search for Mobile Growth and Pancakes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at StoreMaven, thanks for listening.